all of Scripture, the whole thing, from Genesis to Revelation, has been inspired by God and orchestrated uniquely by the Spirit to teach us about the saving work of Christ. What a gift. What a gift that the, the Scripture is to us and how God has made it abundantly clear what is the most important truth for us as human beings to grasp on this side of heaven. There is nothing more significant for us to know than what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. There's no greater news. There's no more important truth than the redemption that is ours, available to us because of God's saving, reconciling work in Jesus Christ. The design of Scripture affirms this priority. The way that God organized all of the Bible is meant to highlight the work and the activity of God through Jesus Christ. And we've already seen this as we've looked at the story of Adam, the story of Noah, the story of Abraham and Isaac last week. And today, we're going to consider how the story of Joseph, beginning in Genesis 37, helps us understand in greater ways the story of Jesus Christ. As we study the story of Joseph, we see that he falls in the same family line that we have been looking at in the book of Genesis. He's the great-grandson of Abraham that we talked about last week. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and now Jacob has had Joseph. As we follow this line, we are also following the promise that was given to this line, given to Abraham, that, that through the covenant that God made with Abraham, all the nations of the world would somehow be blessed. And so we know that as Joseph takes center stage, as he becomes the, the main character of the end of, of Genesis, that somehow God is going to use Joseph in the line of Abraham after the promise given to Adam and Noah to continue forward his promise to bless everyone, to prove himself faithful once again. When we encounter Joseph in Genesis 37, we find out some interesting things about this young man. He's 17 years old. He shepherds flocks occasionally with his brothers, and he's got a whole bunch of brothers. But we also see... The Bible tells us that of all his brothers, he is the most loved by his father, Jacob. And there goes a, there's a lot that goes into why Joseph is loved more than his other brothers. We see a lot of that unfolding in the, the chapters previous to Genesis 37. But the reality is the brothers don't care. They don't care about the backstory. They don't care about the story of, of Jacob's wives and how he married his wives. All they know is that their father loves their brother more than them. As a result, it creates this, this jealousy in their hearts directed toward their brother Joseph. And their jealousy increases when Jacob gives Joseph a very special robe or coat, depending on your translation, if it was implicit before that Jacob loved Joseph most, it is suddenly explicit 
and this expensive, colorful robe that Joseph is wearing around. Talk about pouring salt on a wound. It'd be like me giving Judah a shirt he could wear around the house that says, my dad loves me more than he loves you, Julia. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. The favor that Joseph has been shown. And as a result of the favor that Jacob has shown to Joseph, the Bible says that the jealousy of the brothers grows to hatred. Verse 4 of chapter 37. They can't even speak peaceably with Joseph because of how much they hate him. To make matters worse, Joseph begins having dreams. Dreams that suggest there's going to be even greater privilege in his future. Listen to the dreams as Joseph describes them in verses 5 to 11 of Genesis 37. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, I don't know why he's going to tell them, but he does. As he tells them, they hate him even more. So notice how the hatred, the jealousy is turning to hatred and the hatred continues to grow in the heart of these brothers. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheep arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. And his brother said to him, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, Joseph. Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. And once again, told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were again jealous of him, but... His father did keep this saying in mind. Can you imagine the anger that these brothers felt? I mean, who does this guy think he is? This younger punk brother. Not only is he favored, he's now saying he's going to rule over us. That's not how this works. This works around here. Younger brothers don't get to rule over older brothers. We should be the ones who are going to rule over him. And with every declaration of favor and every declaration of these dreams, the jealousy and the hatred in their heart grows for their brother. And as their jealousy consumes them, the brothers decide to take drastic action. Joseph is sent by his father, Jacob, to check on his brothers, following all the way to a place called Dothan. And as he approaches them, the brothers begin to conspire against him. And they begin to to discuss the possibility of murdering him. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? A brother consumed by jealousy of another brother conspiring to kill him. Did we see that earlier in Genesis? The stain of sin seen in Cain and Abel is still at work. So they want to kill him and they want to cover it up. Reuben, though, who's the oldest brother, hears of this plan and he takes action 
to stop it. Look at Genesis 37, verses 21 to 24. He says to them, let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him, that, that later Reuben might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of the robe that was such a focal point of their jealousy, this robe of many colors, and they took him and they threw him into a pit that was empty. There was no water in it. Reuben's plan to rescue Joseph throws, though, is thrown a curveball because unbeknownst to him, the brothers decide to sell Joseph into slavery. While he's sitting there in this pit, a caravan of Ishmaelites, more specifically Midianites, were passing by, traveling from Gilead all the way down to Egypt. And Judah, the brother of Joseph, which I don't think is an inconsequential detail when you consider the line of Jesus. But Judah says, what profit is it to us to let Joseph stay in this pit? Let's make some money off of him. Let's sell him into slavery. And the brothers do just that. Reuben was not there to stop them. So Joseph, the son of favor, is sold into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. And he's taken from Dothan all the way down to Egypt. And then the brothers conspire to cover up their tracks and they take this robe, this coat of many colors, and they shred it. And they pour animal blood all over it and they lie to their father and say, your son's been killed. This is all we found of him. We don't know where his body is. And this seems tragic, right? Tragic end, perhaps, to this Story, Jacob, the father, is overwhelmed with grief for the son that he loves. In fact, he says to his brothers, I might as well just die right here. I might as well just go join him and shield. I'm so overwhelmed by death. And what are the dreams that were given to Joseph? You see, dreams in the book of Genesis are always, always considered to be given by God. Promises given to these people by God. So if these dreams were given to Joseph from God and they were promises made to him by God, could God make good on them? A lot's changed, right? It's a lot different being a son of promise and a favored house to now being sold into slavery. Could, could everything that God showed or revealed to Joseph actually come true? And once again, we're forced to wrestle with this question of whether or not God will be faithful to his promises. Here's a little preview. He is. Because this story is not really a tragedy as you continue to read. Because God is sovereignly working through this whole story to bring about the salvation of his people. He even uses the evil actions of these brothers to accomplish larger sovereign purposes. And he doesn't abandon Joseph. He's with Joseph. Wherever Joseph goes, even outside of his father's house, he finds favor. He's bought by a guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar's so impressed with Joseph that he sets him over his house. And then Joseph finds a little too much favor in the eyes of Potiphar's wife. <laughs> but 
but he won't indulge her ungodly appetites. And so she lies and she betrays him and he's sent to prison. But even in prison, God is with him and he finds favor there. And God allows him to meet the the Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker who had both fallen out of favor with their king. And in interpreting their dreams, he is positioned to one day, much later down the road, as we will see, interpret the dream of Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh is so impressed with the wisdom of this man and what evidence in his life of God being upon his life that there is, that he places him over his household to now where Joseph is second in command of all of Egypt. And suddenly the dreams that seemed very far off in Genesis 37 are fulfilled. And this is important because a famine is coming. A famine that will infect his whole family, Joseph's whole family, the family of promise, and therefore the promise of God himself and the entirety of the world. And it will force his family to come to Egypt and ask Joseph, who has been divinely placed in the right place at the right time for help. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? In a fit of jealousy, these brothers perform an act of evil that actually ends up being used by God to secure their own salvation, a salvation they didn't even know they needed. And what's more incredible is how Joseph treats his brothers when they come before him, especially at the end of the story. Joseph looks at these brothers and he comforts them. They're very ones who betrayed him. He now forgives. Look at me at Genesis 50. Verses 15 to 21. Jacob has died. And the brothers think that Joseph is only being nice to them because of his love for their father. And now they're concerned that with Jacob passing, Joseph may want to finally get that revenge that he felt that they felt he was due. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and finally pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him, saying, behold, we are your servants. Does that sound familiar? But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people, not just you, many should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you. I will provide for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. It's an incredible ending to an incredible story, a great story that's meant, given, recorded to encourage the people of God. So let's think for a moment, having 
digested, the reader digest version of this story. Let's think for a moment just some, of some ways that this story is meant to encourage the people of God. I got four, in fact, that I want us to consider as a people this morning of how this story should encourage us as the people of God. Firstly, the story of Joseph affirms the sovereignty of God. Think about what we learn about the, the power of God, the knowledge of God in this story. He is sovereignly controlling all things to his desired ends. No matter how crazy Joseph's life may seem, no matter how many threats come against him, and consequently the promises of God, God has shown over and over and over again to be still in control. That he is directing the steps that he is moving all things toward his desired end. And this includes, by the way, the evil actions of the brothers. God is not caught off guard by them. He's up there watching down upon the earth, and he sees these brothers betray Joseph, and he's thinking, man, i got to get a plan B in order. Hey, angels, what's... What's some other options that we can consider? No, everything that's happening is right according to his redemptive plan. Remember Joseph's stunning words in chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, brothers, speaking from Joseph's perspective, you meant evil against me. But what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are Today And it leads us to a very sobering question. Is it possible that God can use even the evil actions of men for his purposes? And the answer is yes. Absolutely he can. So scripture says, although man is responsible for his evil actions, it was the brothers who did evil. It was the brothers who betrayed their brother. It was the brothers who lied. And they did all of that out of the sin in their heart, the jealousy that consumed them, and the hatred that resulted from that. They are firmly responsible for their actions, yet at the very same time, everything that they do is not outside the control of sovereign God and his plans to redeem humanity. Man intended one thing, but hear me, it is the intention of God that will stand. And can you imagine how encouraging this truth would be for the people of God moving forward? As they experience hardship, evil, oppression, persecution, even the judgment of God through military captivity and defeat, to know and trust that regardless of what we can see around us, there is something greater going on that God is in control. And that he is working out all things for his glory and the good of his people. What rest, what comfort the sovereignty of God should provide to the people of God. There's nothing outside of his control. There's nothing outside of his knowledge. There's nothing outside of his power. Secondly, not only does the story, story of Joseph affirm the sovereignty of God, it also brings clarity regarding the favor of God. What it actually looks like to be favored by God. Joseph is favored by more than just 
his earthly father and his story. Every single circumstance we looked at in the story of Joseph, we find that he has found uncommon favor, telling us that there's more to this favor than just Joseph's qualities and good looks. God, his heavenly father, has shown him favor, and everyone else notices the favor of God upon him. But notice that God's favor upon Joseph does not mean that his life was easy. And isn't that what we usually think? That if God's showing us favor, that our life's going to be easy, that we're going to be free from hardship, that, that nothing that happens in the story of Joseph will happen in our story. Surely we won't be betrayed by our family, by those who love us most. Surely if God favors us, we won't get sold into slavery. Surely there will be no injustice done to us in our life. We are favored by God. Certainly we would not be sent to prison or spend time waiting for God to fulfill his promises to us. None of the stuff that we see in Joseph's story would ever happen to us if we are favored by God. Yet this story challenges in the face those conceptions. They are misconceptions, in fact, whenever you look at the testimony of Scripture. Sometimes, in order for God's redemptive plan to move forward, it requires difficult times for God's people. God has never promised us a life free of hardship, but here's what he does promise us. That in the midst of those hardships and the midst of those difficulties, he will be with us. He will be with us. God doesn't promise an easy life, but he does promise his presence. Think about how many times in all the difficulties, and remember Psalm 105 that we read this morning. They were difficult times in the prison. He was bound. He was beaten. In all the difficult times, the Bible shows us that Joseph is still accompanied by the presence of God. God had already given us clues that he was with Joseph by giving him these dreams and the favor of his father. But in Potiphar's house, we see it explicitly. In chapter 39, verse 2, the Bible says that in Potiphar's house, God is with Joseph, and that is why he finds favor. In prison, even after what looks like maybe he's lost the favor of God, no, it's explicitly clear in chapter 39, verses 21 to 23, that God is still with Joseph, and he is the one giving Joseph favor. Pharaoh acknowledges, Pharaoh himself acknowledges in chapter 41, verse 39, that Joseph's ability to interpret these dreams is a wisdom that can only come from God's presence resting upon him. And what a challenge this provides for God's people who think that the favor of God should lead to comfort and peace only. A challenge for us to consider what it is that we're actually longing for whenever God attaches himself to us. Are we longing for earthly comfort? Are we longing for temporary uneasy peace? Or are we longing for the comfort that only God can provide? Is his presence enough when we feel the effects of sin in this life? The story expands our idea of what it means to be favored by God. Thirdly, 
Not only does the story of Joseph affirm the sovereignty of God and clarify what it means to be favored by God, the story of Joseph challenges the people of God in the area of forgiveness. To be a forgiving people, one of the, the characteristics of God's people must be that they are forgiving. Why? Because we're supposed to look like God, and God is a forgiving God. Joseph's betrayal was great. It's hard for me to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine that the feelings that must be running through Joseph's head throughout this story. He was sent by his father to check on his brothers, a normal day. A normal day in his life to see if they needed anything and to help provide and care for his brothers. But suddenly everything changes. The very ones he was sent to care for, the very ones who were supposed to protect him and care for him, assault him, throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery, forever changing his life. Yet somehow, at the end of all that happens to him, including all that happens in Potiphar's house, all that happens in the prison, waiting for years to be able to come before Pharaoh and interpret a dream that will bring him to the place that God had in mind for him. At the end of all of that, all that hardship and suffering, somehow Joseph is able to, con- to forgive his brothers. That is so unnatural, isn't it? We want people who hurt us, we want people who betray us to get what they deserve, right? We want them to suffer. We want them to feel the effects of their mistakes. This summer, AT&T, U-verse was in a, a contract dispute with CBS, and we didn't have CBS for six weeks. And I got so mad at AT&T U-verse, I said, I'm cutting the cord because I wanted them to feel the effect of their greed. We don't do that. We don't do what we see in Joseph's life. We don't forgive. And yet the greatest betrayal many of us could ever fathom, the greatest hardship, somehow Joseph finds the ability to forgive. And the greatness of the betrayal just makes us see the greatness of the forgiveness. And it's a challenge to God's people. Are you forgiving in this way? Are you holding grudges? Are you letting it turn into bitterness? Are you becoming the brothers consumed with jealousy and hatred that will lead you to kill your brother? Or are you going to be in the business of forgiveness? Understanding that the favor you've been given, you have no right to. You're not entitled to that. God's freely given it. So surely you should be forgiving as God has been forgiving. And finally, The story of Joseph reminds us of the constant and miraculous provision of God. As we look at the story of Joseph, we can't miss one of the central threads, and that's this. There's a famine. All the sovereign orchestration of Joseph's life to get him to that place in Egypt was so that God could make provision for his people for Famine is a severe famine, as we see in Genesis 43, verse 1. A severe famine that affected the whole earth. And yet, what man could not see, God was already making preparation for. So that when Joseph ascended to a place of responsibility 
and the house of Pharaoh. His family could be provided for, the promise could be provided for, and indeed the whole world could be provided for. Look at chapter 41, verses 56 to 57. Here's the Bible says, when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, listen to this, all the earth came to Egypt. All the earth came to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe, not just in Egypt, but over the whole earth. Pretty incredible. The provision that we see from God to provide for his people and provide for his promise and consequently provide for the whole earth. These are all pretty encouraging things, right? These are truths that should encourage us as a people of God. But what I also want us to see this morning is that there is no more encouraging piece of this story than how it points us to the greater story of Jesus Christ. The Bible shows us that Jesus is the true and better Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers in order to secure an even greater salvation. A salvation, by the way, that we didn't even know we needed. Jesus, again, is presented as the favored son, rejected by his brothers, handed over to Gentiles for a few pieces of silver, descending into great depths so that at the exact right time, God could exalt him highly to secure our salvation. So many parallels in the story between Joseph and Jesus that, that Joseph's story helps us to understand the story of Jesus. So let's think for a moment. How specifically does the story of Joseph help us understand the story of Christ? How, does, how, does, how do the encouragements that we find in the story of Joseph lead us to greater encouragement in the story of Jesus? Firstly, the story of Jesus is a greater affirmation of the sovereignty of God. If we follow and we track the sovereign working of God in Joseph's life and we apply that same tracking to the story of Jesus, we find an even greater display of the sovereignty of God. There was a greater act of evil that came against Jesus, a greater injustice, but all used by God for his divine purposes. You think about this. Jesus' brothers betrayed him in the same way that Joseph's did. But he was truly innocent. We don't get to see the, the full sinfulness of Joseph on the page, but we know he was sinful. We know that he does die because of that sinfulness. Whatever happened to him, he was never fully innocent. He maybe didn't deserve that from his brothers, but he was never innocent. Jesus was truly innocent. Nothing that happened to him should have happened to him. He was a clearly favored son. And yet that favor did not stir devotion from the people of God. It stirred jealousy that led to hatred, that led to murder. Jesus was condemned. But hear me, God was not surprised. 
At no point in the story of Jesus is God the Father out of control. Everything that happened, happened exactly as God willed it. Jesus was sent by God the Father at the exact right time in human history. His earthly life carefully orchestrated by God the Father so that the exact right time he could be exalted, fulfilling the promises of God and securing God's salvation for us in his Son. What we see in the story of Jesus is not just one promise kept, but every single promise that God has made to us as his people to save us and reconcile us, to provide a way of redemption, every single promise of God has been fulfilled and faithfully kept in Jesus just as he promised it would. God, sovereignly in control. Listen, friends, I don't know what's going on in your life. But there's nothing too great for God. There's nothing he doesn't know about. And there's nothing he can't use for his redemptive purposes. And that leads to the second point. Not only does the story of Jesus affirm the sovereignty of God in greater ways, the story of Jesus brings even greater clarity to the favor of God. What it means to be favored by God. There's, there's no greater son of favor than the eternal son. There's no one that God can love more than himself. His son, Jesus. And yet, this son, the eternal son, suffered. And God redeemed that suffering. He, he used the evil actions of man to accomplish his purposes. Again, the promise of God that I think we need to hear over and over again as his people is that this life will not be free of hardship. If Christ's life was not free of hardship, how can we expect our life to be free of hardship? I think a lot of us think we're going to come to Jesus and suddenly we're on vacation for the rest of our life. Last night, my family and I were talking about our time in Rosemary Beach Panama City Beach, and it was awesome. Ah, great house to stay in, wonderful food that we were eating, not worrying about our diets, incredible weather, going to the beach every day, uninterrupted time with our family. And we were just thinking, oh, I would love to go back there again. But here's the problem. It's not reality. It's not reality. It's not life. Friends, when we come and to Christ, we are not entering into a fully peaceful world. We are at war. We weren't saved to go into retirement or go on vacation. There's still work to be done. And hear me, when we war against the evil in this world, when we work against the, the powers and principalities of this world that are against the things of God, we will feel the effects of that. We will feel the effects of the two kingdoms that we live in colliding. The kingdom of the flesh and the kingdom of the spirit. There will be times when we feel hardship. We feel suffering. 
Our promise is not to be free of that. Our promise is that when we feel those things, God will be with us. And that somehow, and his sovereign goodness, he will use all those things for his glory and your good. Isn't that what Paul writes in Romans 8, 28? I'm going to turn there if you want to turn there. I think it's important for us to see this. Romans 8, 28. Many of you maybe have mugs with Romans 8, 28 on it. Shirts. Maybe it's on your, your wall at your house. It's a great verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Let's think about what's included in all things. I think many of us interpret all things in a very positive way, right? That everything's going to be rosy in our life. All things are going to be working together. But what's the context in which Paul is writing this? He's writing it about suffering. Look at verse 18 of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul suffered. He knows suffering. He was beaten, left for dead. He was imprisoned. He was lied about. He was run out of town. And yet, here's what he says. All that stuff that happened, all things, the good and the bad, all that stuff that happened, it's going to, I don't know how, But somehow I'm trusting in the sovereign goodness of God to know that he's going to use whatever bad stuff comes into my life and whatever good stuff comes into my life for his glory and my good. Friends, that's good news. That's good stuff. I don't know what you walked in here feeling this morning. I don't know what difficulties have come with you into this room today. But here's what I know. Whatever it is that you're walking through, God is with you. If you are in Christ, if you are a son, those he loves who have been covered by the blood, God is with you. And somehow, some way, in God's goodness, He will not waste whatever it is that you're walking through. He will use it for his sovereign redemptive plan to reconcile all things to him in Christ. It will be for his glory. And you're good. You may not see it now. We don't see things the way God sees things. But you can trust in him. You can trust in his goodness. You can trust in his faithfulness. It's written on every page in this book. And if God can redeem, if God can use the evil that we see in the life of Jesus, if God can use the suffering that we see in the life of Jesus, no greater evil, no greater suffering to accomplish his purposes, surely he can use whatever's happening in your life in the same way. That's what Paul said. If that much goodness can come out of Christ's suffering, I'm yours, God. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Use me however you want. I'm going to trust that even when I can't see it, I know that you're going to be able to use this for your purposes. Thirdly, the story of Christ affirms in greater ways the sovereignty of God and brings clarity to the favor of God. The story of Jesus offers an even greater display of forgiveness. 
and brings about a greater comfort. I think all of us agree that the forgiveness offered by Joseph is stunning, but there is a more stunning forgiveness that's offered in Luke 23, verse 34. In the midst of being crucified, in the midst of having been betrayed by one of the men who was closest to him in this life, in the midst of being mocked, seeing soldiers competing for the little that he had in his life, Jesus says, with such compassion, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Has there ever been a greater betrayal than the betrayal of the brothers whom God sent Jesus to check on, to care for, to provide for, and save? Looking at him and rejecting him, selling him for 30 pieces of silver to Gentiles who would crucify him. Has there ever been a greater portrayal than us as God's creation looking at him and saying, you're not good enough for me. I want the stuff you created more than I want you. Even if it costs me eternity. And yet, in the face of that betrayal, the greatness of that betrayal comes a greater display of forgiveness. As God looks upon us with compassion, offering his son freely to provide us comfort in the midst of our darkness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There has never been a greater act of forgiveness than the cross of Jesus Christ. Never. Never a greater betrayal and never a greater act of forgiveness. And the challenge is, if we have been forgiven much, how could we not forgive others as well? I don't know, again, what experiences you've had in your life. I don't know what act of betrayal you've suffered. I don't know if the very people who are supposed to be your family and love you and protect you betrayed you. I don't know how you're doing with that. But it's possible it could become a source of bitterness to you. But that's not how God's called us to live. And it's always worse for you than it is for them, by the way. There's nothing anybody could ever do that's greater than what we have done to God, and yet God saw fit to forgive us, to make a way for forgiveness. So are we going to be a people of forgiveness? Can we forgive like Joseph and in in greater ways forgive like Jesus? And finally... The story of Jesus offers an even greater provision. An even greater provision. Through Joseph, God provided for his family, for Egypt, and for all the world because there was famine. I want you to hear me today, friends. We live in a land of famine. Severe famine. All around us, there are people who hunger deeply. All around us, there are people who thirst deeply and they don't know where to turn, but we know there's a storehouse full 
of God's provision for them in Jesus Christ. That they will come to him. They will bow before him. That they will confess their actions that led to them being in this place of need. There is forgiveness available and every hunger they have will be satisfied by the bread of life. And every thirst they have will be satisfied by the living water that will cause them to never thirst again. Oh, that we would see God's provision. We were talking this week in our preaching team meeting about the story and Pastor Moses says, isn't it it interesting that the provision that God made for God's people through Joseph, it ultimately led them to a place where they were enslaved. Isn't that interesting? That the provision through Joseph led them into Egypt, and over time, the fact they were in Egypt led them into a place of slavery. Here's a way that Christ's provision is greater. His provision doesn't lead you into slavery. It leads you into freedom, eternal, everlasting freedom. Every longing of your heart perfectly, deeply satisfied by the only one who could because he created you to be satisfied by him. Friends, Jesus is better. He's a true and better Joseph, and he offers a greater provision and greater forgiveness. Here's the question. Have you embraced that provision today? Have you recognized that you betrayed God, that spiritually you're starving and you're thirsting, and you will die in a land of famine, eternally separated from God, unless you turn to the provision that he has made for you in Jesus? That you find the forgiveness that is only yours in Jesus. Oh, that today will be the day when you would repent and believe in Christ alone for salvation. Just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you more about who Christ is and how he alone can provide you the forgiveness that you need. But if you have experienced that forgiveness, let me press in a little bit further. As a member of God's people, are you living in that forgiveness? Have you extended that forgiveness as an example to others of the supernatural forgiveness that you've been given to Jesus? Are you holding on to some bitterness? And maybe you're bitter at God because of some things he's allowed into your life. I wonder if this morning you'd sit before him and instead of being bitter about it, ask, God, how can you use even this situation as a promise of using all things? How can you use it for your glory and my good? I may not see it now, but I'm trusting in your sovereign control. I'm trusting that you're all powerful, you're all knowing, and you're all good. And that at the end of the day, you're going to use this somehow to further the gospel. Wherever you are, you bow your head. Spend some time before the Lord asking him to help you know how to respond. Oh, that we would be encouraged this morning from the story of Joseph, but in even greater ways, the story of Jesus. Have you experienced the forgiveness of Christ? Are you living in the forgiveness of Christ? And are you trusting in the sovereignty of God? Father, help us. Find us faithful. Responding as you lead us. We pray in the name of Jesus.
Amen. You send in response, the Lord leads.